Did you know that Spotlight On is completely self-funded by the team that produces it? We're always looking for ways to keep the podcast self-sufficient without sacrificing the listener experience or the integrity of the show. The best way we could think to do that was to ask for the support of our listeners. Please consider making a donation to help cover our annual operating expenses. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click the word Donate. If you can, please do. If you cannot, please don't worry about it. Just continue to enjoy the show. We're happy to have you as a listener. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is off, or maybe just focused inward. Spotlight On producer and editor Michael Donaldson and I communicate constantly throughout the research and production of our episodes. But we rarely actually speak in person. So when Michael suggested we spend some time catching up to discuss some topics of shared interest, we decided to press record and share our discussion with listeners. We had a freewheeling and sprawling talk, which Michael worked his editing magic on in order to bring to you. I hope you enjoy. So you went camping recently. Yeah, yeah. How often do you go camping? Not enough. Not enough. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll go once a year. If I'm super lucky, I'll go twice. But my son and I, who's leaving for college in two weeks, I've been taking him since he was like three or four. And so it's sort of a thing we do. Mm-hmm. And... uh it's crazy out here. Like we drove less than two hours and we were in incredible terrain. It's really beautiful. It's really amazing up here. So do you mean like mountainous? Like Yeah, and like terrain? true wilderness, like no airplane sounds, no sounds of the road, you know, like absolutely still quiet, just animals. <laughs> A lot of bear warnings. <laughs> Love it. We have those here too. Yeah. When you're in the car with your son going two or three hours to your destination who's in charge of the stereo generally him but yeah generally him generally him (laughs) and that's changed over the last couple years like it evolved from the first part of his life where it was me and then it changed to we used to do a thing on road trips where we would alternate songs now it's mostly him Unless there's something I want to listen to, and then I pull rank. But we like mostly the same stuff. That's great. Um, yeah, I groomed him. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't always work. No, I'm lucky. I, I, I have friends who are extremely uh, frustrated with their offspring. <laughs> and, and others who are completely pleased. I've had two, two different friends. Well, one's my brother, who have daughters around the same age, which is around 12 who both independently have become like really into the cure. So this friend of mine in LA, his daughter came up to him and goes, have you ever heard of this band called The Cure? <laughs> it's, yeah, I've seen them like three times. And she's like, what? Freaking out. And so he took her to the concert in LA. My sister-in-law ended up taking my niece to the concert in New Orleans because she was really into The Cure. And I don't know, I just find that really fascinating. Yeah, my son got exposed to that 
music through the gorillas because Robert Smith was on a gorillas track and then oh, Peter yeah. Hook from New Order was on a gorillas track. So the gorillas for him have been a bit of a gateway drug to other music because Damon Albarn, like it's all features, basically their music. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then he'll say, oh, who is so-and-so? And then he'll go listen to their music and then be down that rabbit hole. So it's old school. Like, you know, when we were kids, it like totally getting a record is. and looking at the notes and seeing who the people were. So I like that. That's fun. That's great. That's how I'm sure you too, how I found out about a lot of music. I mean, the Velvet Underground changed my life when I discovered them. And I discovered them because I was so into REM and their first couple albums. And Peter Buck in an interview was like, yeah, we're really into the Velvet Underground. And I'm like, oh, I should check this out. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. But on the other hand, it's also so funny because I can't imagine being 12 and like going to concerts with my dad. My son and I go to shows all the time and I'm so glad that he wants to, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to. <laughs> right. It seems like a lot of audiences that age and fans that age, it almost seems to me like from the outside as someone who doesn't have kids, which is almost like an equal affinity for like what would be considered classic music and new music. It's like they're dipping into both. My perception is they have no, they have no context the way we did. First of all, they're not getting their music from genre sources. So like they're not listening to classic rock radio or they're not listening to top 40 radio. So they don't start in a silo. But I've observed this a lot. I've talked about it in other places with people. Even in the early mid 2000s, when I, it was the first time in my career where I had people who were much younger than me working for me, they would play music in the office and the playlists would be like everything. It would go from like hip hop to like Genesis to Hall and Oates to emo, whatever was at the time. Like it was very interesting that there was very little or no irony, no context and no differentiation between like high and low art. It was all just songs (laughs) and music. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always found it encouraging. I have a friend who um, works at a record store, the big local indie record store here in Orlando. And I remember him, him telling me when he first started working there five years ago or six years ago, some 16-year-old kid walk up to the register and it'll be like a Britney Spears album, a Gang of Four album, and Max Richter. <laughs> it's just like, what? It was never like that when I was working at record stores. In fact, it was like... The person would walk in the store and you could look at them and how they're dressed and immediately knew what section they're going to go to. Yeah, it's actually, it's fun watching someone else's musical development over a long period of time. That's been very gratifying and interesting and a particularly fun part of the parent journey. His blog posts are great too. I love his blog posts. (laughs) They're funny. It's pretty perceptive though, also. Yeah. Yeah, he's... um, He's an interesting human. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So when I was growing up, there was no real like rock and roll radio where I was in central Louisiana. And my parents weren't really big music people, which seems kind of strange to say, but they were. It's like my mom played Neil Diamond around the house while she was cleaning. And that was it, which is great. But that was it. That was all I heard. So I had this total black hole of knowledge when it comes to like pre-80s music because we got our rock and roll station around 79 80 and they mainly played contemporary stuff they didn't mix in some classics but was mainly contemporary so i have this total black hole i don't think i heard a beatles album until i was like 19 
Seriously. Wow. So crazy. I mean, her Beatles songs, but I don't think I said that was to do an album. But I heard uh, crowd rock albums before that. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's so weird. So I did a tour, a van tour. I have this friend, he actually played drums in uh, this weird band I had in college in Louisiana. And he ended up becoming one of the first tour managers for Wilco. So we have tour manager experience. And I hired him as my tour manager in the van tours, like me, him, and a sound guy, because I was a one-man show. So I was doing my weird little live one-man show. And we were touring with Low Fidelity All-Stars, if you remember them, just following them in the van. My friend Brian, who was a tour manager and van driver, knew about my black hole. So this 45-day tour, he made it the playlist into like my musical education. So we've listened to all like the classic 70s albums the entire way. Wow. That's incredible. That's yeah. kind of neat to experience that out of that other context, out of the youthful context. I had definitely the diametrically opposite experience. There was always an AM radio around, lots of classic rock. Yeah, it's just so much music. I was thinking about that this morning and it, it, before our talk was that it's the defining element in, that's been in my life as long as I can remember. No. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting, like I said, that my parents were really music people, but music always, yeah, very early on. But when I started discovering a lot of all the other music that's out there, kind of like Naven Johnson and the Jerk, when he, when he turns on the radio, he's like, if this is out there, what else is out there? I figured out that if I bought this powered antenna, my bedroom was on the second floor of the house. If I rigged it, soldered it into my boombox, this powered antenna that I bought from Crutchfield, if you remember Crutchfield. Oh, yeah. I would hang it out the window of my bedroom. I could pick up college radio stations in Baton Rouge and Houston and various other places, but only in the middle of the night. I had the boombox next to my bed. And I have a deja vu that I may have told this story when I was on the podcast last time. <laughs> I'll keep going. So I would have the... um boombox next to my pillow and i would buy those 120 minute lousy quality cassette tapes you could buy and record because i could only pick up these stations like in the middle of the night when it would hit the end of the tape it would click and that would wake me up and i'd turn it over and hit record and go back to sleep and then the next day in school i just walk around with my headphones listen to the radio show from whatever college station i had taped all night wow that's incredible like discovered all this great music Radio is so amazing. It was such an important companion. There really is no other way to... Ca I mean, it was a, radio was a companion. Pretty much everything I do comes out of my love for radio and those college stations. Like as far as in the music industry or in music that I do, just because these people at these college radio stations had such a huge influence on my life and they didn't know who I was. They didn't know this kid in Alexandria, Louisiana was recording them at three in the morning they completely changed my life i mean i have specific memories of hearing certain songs on those radio stations for the first time i remember when i heard cocteau twins for the first time oh, was God. i woke up in the middle of the night and this cocteau twins song was playing beatrix which is a really weird cocteau twins song it was like in that half asleep half dream state and i was just whoa what is going on and then I fell back asleep, and then the next morning I woke up, and I remembered it. And I was like, "Is was that real? Did I really hear that? Was that a real thing? And then I had the tape, and I'm listening, and then the song comes on the tape, and I'm like, oh, my God, it really did. This is real. This music is real. 
Do you have any of your tapes? Not from those. I have tapes of my college radio shows. I was so obsessed with college radio. I was like, I had to have, I had to be on college radio. It was funny to hear Dan Mack to say that on the recent episode with him, how college radio was an obsession of his because I totally resonated with that. So I had this show in this little town called Ruston, Louisiana. And I was only there for a semester or two. It was right before I moved to Florida. Louisiana Tech was the university there. I had this radio show with this friend of mine. And it was the coolest radio show because we started at 9 or 10 p.m. on a Friday night. And the guy who ran the radio station, whose name is Mike Dickinson, and he now runs Chicken Ranch Records out of Austin, Texas. He was basically like, you guys can go on as long as you want. Just shut down whenever you're done. <laughs> so we would, our show would go to like three or four in the morning. It was just, we'd have our friends there and we'd just all be like this kind of party. And I haven't seen it yet, but there's a documentary that recently came out about the Elephant Six Collective, which is Apples and Stereo and Olivia Tremor Control and Neutral Milk Hotel and all those guys. And I've been told, I think it's uh, Robert from Apples and Stereo mentions that the college radio that they listened to when they were in high school was very influential. They were in Ruston, Louisiana, and our show was a show that they listened to. Robert used to come hang out with us on our show. Will from Olivia Turner Control used to hang out when they were like 17. Bill Doss from Neutral Milk Hotel, who's sadly departed, he actually lived next door to me. So all those guys were like in the town when we were doing this crazy radio show, just playing all this insane music. And it was really neat to learn of my own possible influence. I don't know. Ruston is a really weird place because mm. all this amazing creativity came out of this town that pretty much its only claim to fame is it's mentioned in Jack Kerouac's On the Road, like in passing. Someone says they're from Ruston, Louisiana. Louisiana Tech has a really good arts department. So basically all these weirdos in Louisiana who can't get out of state it's where they go so they can get into the arts department so there's like this really thriving creative community in this little town another group that formed in Ruston, louisiana which was recently revealed when one of the members died who had remained in secret all these years were the residents the residents were random no kidding the two guys who were at the basis of the residents were randomly assigned roommates at louisiana tech wow I never would have guessed that. It's like these weird little towns that have these like creative springs to them. Obviously, Athens is one people could always bring up. Yeah, I think maybe um, Amherst or Northampton might have been that way at some point. I don't know if it would still be considered that. Maybe Madison, Wisconsin. Right. Maybe for slightly different reasons. I think of them now through the lens of politics. Yeah. The Oasis is being in these places where... Nashville being stereotypical in my mind, but Seattle in a lot of ways being that, you know, you drive 20, 30 miles out of here and it's dicey. Yeah. What they call the I-4 corridor, yeah. Orlando and Tampa. It's now basically the liberal bastion of Florida, I guess you could say. What's going on with the fucking water there? Do you mean literally like what's going on with the water or do you mean metaphorically? So I'm on the diagonal other side of the country from you right now. And the only news that we get about Florida other than the Klansman in chief is that the mm -hmm. ocean's bubbling? Like it's like, oh yeah, the ocean's bubbling. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I it's don't happening know. fast, man. It, it happens slowly, and then it's happening all at once. 
It's so crazy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's a weird state of it. Do you, have you ever read Kim Stanley Robinson? No. He wrote this book called Ministry for the Future. I guess you would call it like a speculative science fiction novel. Basically, it starts now and then goes through the next 30 or 40 years Oy. about basically what's happening climate change-wise. But the guy is like this crazy genius dude who just researches and knows everything. I'll have to send you a podcast or two with him being interviewed. It'll blow your mind. Actually, he was on Ezra Klein's podcast. That's a good one. He offers like kind of solutions as part of his book. I mean, they're all fictional at the characters who are all in government and the UN are doing, but they're like really interesting ways to not completely solve the problem, but make things bearable or back to bearable and bring a start. It's a really interesting book. And once you read it, you start seeing its influence on policy that some of the more progressive people are talking about, which is interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But you also see some of the horrible things he says that are going to happen that are actually happening. Yeah. <laughs> right on schedule with his timeline in his book, too. It's kind of like, oh, my God. He calls himself, and when he's interviewed and he's asked how he feels about the future, I love this line. He calls himself an angry optimist. He says, I'm yeah. an angry optimist. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I've been like back to back reading a lot of light books lately. But not me. I'm reading Blood Meridian right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm going to read next, but it'll be something a bit more substantial. But I'm reading a book now about real life superheroes. That'll do it. In Washington, we have the second highest amount of real life superheroes, second only yeah, to Yeah, there was one guy who was real well known. Phoenix Jones. Yes. <laughs> John Ronson did a thing on him. He's still around. Yeah, he's a character. The book meets them where they are. It doesn't mock them. It's a bit of an attempt to try to figure out like who does this and why. A lot of them aren't crime fighters. Like they're do-gooders. Like they hand out supplies to homeless people or they raise money for soup kitchens. And then some of them do both. Some of them are good Samaritans and then also crime fighters. But the crime fighting almost always doesn't end well for them. So are they their own superheroes? Like, like they have their own costumes or are they emulating like a actual? No, they're, they have their own identities and costumes. Yeah. And capabilities. Yeah. That's great. And, uh, they, don't, they generally don't believe they have superpowers. Like they're usually ex-military people who have weapons training or martial arts skills, but they don't. There's a handful of them that think they have superpowers, but most of them don't. I think thinking you're a superhero is its own superpower. Yeah, I would say so. There's a guy here in Orlando who I wish he had his own costume, but he dresses as Batman. And one of those like really good Batman costumes. Like it's not the one with the um, George Clooney nipples, but more recent kind of version. He is involved in TNRing cats and freaking delivers stray cats he's captured to be neutered. He delivers them in his Batman costume to the local shelter. Incredible. He's a superhero. He's a superhero. Are you into superhero stuff? No. Me neither. I grew up marginally interested in comic books. I read them from time to time, but it wasn't a thing for me. I like Batman. I think Batman's intriguing. I like the superheroes that don't have superpowers. Although I suppose his limitless wealth is its own superpower. Yes. I like the physical skill and his wits. I like Batman a lot. You know, and I, I like Spider-Man. Spider-Man's okay. I don't really like Superman. He, I, I well, there's, there's no constraint to Superman. When I was a kid, 
I had this book I was given as a gift and it was like a hardcover book that had the first 10 years of Superman comics in it. And I loved it. I remember in those early Superman comics when he first came around, he had all these constraints. Like he wasn't like a god. Like he didn't even really fly. He was basically jumping really far. <laughs> and it's like now he flies around the earth and makes time go backwards. How do you have like lasers come out of your eyes and breath that freezes up? Where, how does that work? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, I just don't understand any of that. I took a class when I first came here to college in Orlando, this really great literature class. And I remember we were talking about fantasy books and things like that. And the professor said something like, I don't like fantasy because anything can happen. And when anything can happen, there are zero stakes. I think about that all the time. It's how they wrecked Star Wars, right? There's the, there used to be some internal rules or internal logic to the way the Star Wars universe worked. There isn't anymore. And like death isn't permanent. Mm -hmm. They completely er eliminated any of the dramatic devices that actually lead to, to stakes yeah, and to tension. And it's just a series of battle sequences. It's so weird. So I actually saw Oppenheimer this weekend, speaking of the... Oh, I went to Barbie. You did? Between the two of us, we're Barbenheimer. And we are. What'd you think of Barbie? Yeah, I liked it. It was fun. It was fun. I'm going to have to go to Oppenheimer alone because nobody's going to go with me, but I very much want to <laughs> see it. I don't know. I, have to, I, I may have to rewatch it someday, but it might be my favorite Christopher Nolan. Might wow. Be. Not that I'm a humongous Christopher Nolan fan, but I do generally like it. Actually, I'm actually one of the few people who like Tenet. I thought Tenet was pretty cool. I didn't see it. Yeah, Barbie was fun. I don't know if you've ever seen Wicked. Did you ever see the play Wicked? No, I haven't. I saw Wicked a long, long time ago, and I remember thinking, as long as they're making 12-year-old girls, this play will run. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it was, it's like heavy metal or wrestling is for boys. Like, as long as there's teenage and pre-adolescent boys, those genres will be fine. Wicked will live forever as long as there's teenage girls. And I say that not to, you know, if it sounds at all despairing, I don't, I don't mean it. But I think that boys and girls should see Barbie. I think they are, though. Yeah. From what I've heard, I think they are. The box office that it did, I mean, it's got to be. Yeah. It's really hard not to laugh out loud every moment Ryan Gosling's on screen. Like, it's it just... It sounds hilarious. It's just so ridiculous and over the top. There's a, a Richard Brody review in The New Yorker. He does not give a crap about spoilers. So it's, it's like filled in spoilers. He gives the spoiler of how Matchbox 20 makes an appearance in it. Oh. And that, just sounds like the, that just sounds like the funniest thing ever. I laughed reading that. I keep saying it to my girlfriend. The best line in the movie is when Ryan Gosling says, you want, you want to come in and I'll play guitar at you? <laughs> that is a great line. <laughs> yeah. Now they're all on strike. Like we saw all the previews for movies that are coming out this fall. And it's basically nothing that looks remotely interesting. And none of it is probably going to actually come out because it sounds like they're going to have to postpone everything because the actors can't promote any of it i think there's going to be a drought of content unless they can get those robots up and running and making some movies it's so interesting it's also terrifying and hopefully something will happen to the actors and writers favor but um it's pretty interesting <laughs> what's this moment in time you know it's really interesting man because i love artists right like i most of my professional career and certainly the pursuit of the podcast has been about supporting 
professional creative people. But I have a very equally strong sort of opinion or point of view that nobody deserves to do it. Or let me say it differently. Nobody's entitled to make money doing it. If you're prepared to starve, great. But if you think that it's a path towards a middle class or better existence, I'm happy for you if you figure it out. But it's only been barely 100 years that there's been this idea of superstars that could make generation building wealth in the art. Absolutely. And and that's always been my problem with not that streaming platforms are completely innocent, of course, but that's always been my problem with the argument of uh, almost the implication that artists were making all this money before streaming, like every artist, like anyone could. It was like, no, not really. (laughs) It's always been tough. It's hard to unravel it from the mercenary zero-sum form of capitalism that we have in our country. Like, it's just disgusting. And to solve anybody's individual point problem, it's all spot solutions until that larger issue is dealt with. And uh, I don't know who has the stomach for that. Yeah. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you like what you've heard so far, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. And now, back to Spotlight On. Another interesting kind of thing regarding the whole writer's strike and everything and the actor's strike, I read something recently. I believe it was in Ryan Broderick's Garbage Day newsletter. And he made this point talking about the whole AI thing. One of the stipulations is they don't want AI actors and they don't want writers don't want AI writing. He wrote in this newsletter, don't the studios realize that if AI gets good enough to where it can make like a Star Wars movie, that means anyone can make a Star Wars movie. That means you and I can make a Star Wars movie. And we already know the tools of production have been not necessarily democratized, but like you could make a reasonable, if you wanted to make an animated Star Wars today, you could definitely do it. Special effects aren't that hard to do anymore. I mean, you're not going to make one that's Disney level, but the world isn't necessarily in love with the Disney Star Wars movies anyway. And like you go back and you watch the original Star Wars movies and nine times out of 10, the people that grew up with them will say the charm is that they were rough around the edges. Yeah, I would be much more concerned about some scrappy upstart putting together a Star Wars movie than I would be about Disney using AI. I feel like the AI thing, when it's applied to movies, it's the same with AI's danger to music, where or supposed danger, the fears you hear expressed. To me, the only aspect of the industry that's truly in danger is that which works by spec. In other words, the, the music for reality TV shows. We need a jaunty song for this scene with mandolin at 100, about 130 BPM beat. And... Like production music. Yeah, exactly. I feel really bad for the production music industry. And it's almost the same for the film industry if they want to rely on for writing specifically. It's the superhero movies and the Star Wars and the IP that's in danger. Because you can just load in all the history of the IP and have it spit out plot lines for 
days and days and days. It's funny you go there. The last 10 or 15 years, Hollywood has basically spent all of its time making movies based on existing IP. And that turns out to be the thing that AI is really good with. Just train it on all the existing IP and say, make me a Star Wars movie that has all the elements of the top three most successful Star Wars movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And it's like Spider-Man. You could just throw in every comic book, every Spider-Man comic book in there and just be like, come up with some cool stories. Which to me, it's almost like, wow, is this an opportunity for new original content and independent film and independent filmmakers? Assuming AI starts being used by major studios to create stuff, and it's mainly going to be focused on IP, obviously there'll be a fatigue about that. And that's where I almost see like an opportunity for filmmakers making original material to sort of jump in and sort of address the fatigue, which... I don't know. We're already seeing fatigue with IP. So there's. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of nominally an observer of that stuff, but it seems like all the anecdotes that you read in the trade press is like the Marvel movies aren't doing as well. The DC movies never really did great. They're going back to the well with Harry Potter. Like the Star Wars movies certainly aren't considered culturally significant. They mm -hmm. might do reasonably good money, but like nobody is impassioned about them. You know, maybe it was going to take care of itself. And by the way, my concerns about AI are actually not in the creative fields. I care far more about integrating AI into weapon systems than I do about fucking using them to generate crowd scenes in a Hollywood motion picture. And I understand that creative people need to worry about it. I would rather let someone else worry about that. And I think I'd rather worry about automating things that should not be automated. <laughs> well, obviously, this is more my wheelhouse than weapon systems, but... My take is I don't even think there's much to worry about in creative fields because it's like you just said, I think it'll work itself out. Speaking from the music side, I'm sure you get it too. It's like people come to me and are like, what do you think about the idea of AI making songs? Like AI having hit songs. Okay, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be one hit song totally generated by AI. There's going to be one. And one reason it's going to be a hit song is because the story behind that song is this is the first song, first number one song ever generated by AI. And that's the only story you can tell about it. There will not be another song that hits number one from AI because the story that this is the second hit song ever created by AI is not compelling. It's not a compelling story. As Kurt Vonnegut says, we are, we're dancing animals. We're dancing animals and we love stories. We love our stories. We love our music, but we love music that has stories. And we love artists that have stories. And that's why I don't see much danger because there is no story behind an AI generated song besides it's an AI generated song. It doesn't really even scare me with pop music, though, to be honest with you. Like if it's catchy and rhythmic and there's somebody behind the AI prompting it to be interesting, it's just another technology tool. But in that case, there is a story because then the person is definitely more artistically involved that creates sort of a story. There's a personality behind it. But as far as people's fears about this anonymous kind of Borg created. Like the machine just generating its own. Just generating like, music, like, like Universal Music suddenly decides they're going to create like a virtual artist that just pumps out songs based on these algorithms. That really is people's fears. But, and maybe it happens, but maybe they're good. And maybe there's still bands that make good. That's the thing is like, you could have both. 
we have shitty bubblegum pop music now that's like almost all computer generated and we still have a resurgence in guitar rock yeah yeah i don't know it's it, to me it's like it's not the right thing to be scared of when it comes to- <laughs> no no no, no. <laughs> I, I i agree but i feel like when i would get into music again thinking back of like music that always i was into i would want to learn about the artist I'd be co-obsessed with them and I'd want to learn about like Velvet Underground. I want to know all about Velvet Underground. And I think that's just the human reaction. I think that's still today with TikTok artists or whoever, that people who become enamored with them want to learn the stories behind these artists, like who they are. And favorite songs, you want to kind of know the story behind your favorite song. I'll look up a song that I'm into. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what the lyric here is about. And there's a story behind it. And I was thinking about this the other day that even anonymous artists like The Residents or Burial's a good example, who was completely anonymous for a while. But I remember this huge community of people that were just deciphering his songs, trying to figure out who's behind it and who this guy is. I wouldn't say that's just as important as the music itself, but it's a big part. But is it in pop music? That's what I don't know. That's the thing is I assume there's different types of music listeners. And for somebody that in the, I'll call it the old world, just turned on the radio and somehow songs became number one songs in the old days. I don't, I don't even really know how it all worked, but did anybody really give a shit about the guy that sang Brandy, You're a Fine Girl? I don't know. I don't know. But maybe there's probably a small group of people that really did and could probably, we're going to hear from all the people that tell us that guy's backstory and how Brandy was like the love, like who the fuck knows? I'm sure there's a story there. But I'm, I don't think most of the people that drove that song to number one ever thought twice about it. <laughs> no, that's totally true because I'm f- talking from a perspective of fandom. And as we all know, most people that listen to music are listening to it in the background. They're not fanatics. Right. And back in our formative days, the only places they would hear music would be either in their car on the radio or in the background in a department store. So yes, those people don't care about these stories, but do those people drive the culture? Well, they are the culture. <laughs> I guess so. I guess they're part of it, but I think fans are the ones driving it. I just, I, it's concentric circles, right? It's like yeah. the closer you get to the center of the circle, the more you need a fictional universe or a meta narrative. And the further out you get, you're just happy to have a catchy song that makes your life better for three and a half minutes. <laughs> That's true. And another thing too, like the argument against what I just said too, is obviously in Asia, they, there already are virtual stars. But the fascinating thing about that example is existing at the same time that J-pop and K-pop totally. is the biggest music on the planet made by real people. Well, not, I mean, I don't know how the underlying tracks are made. I'm ignorant about that, but there's real performers out there filling stadiums, performing that music at the same time that there's already virtual artists out there. In fact, it could even be the same people. Well, who the frick knows? So like, <laughs> I, say the, I say whoever wants to make creative stuff, the more the merrier. It's easier to have that attitude in music until the universals of the world are self-generating the music entirely. But isn't it the same thing? Like everybody wants to corner the market on all of it. Like they're not going to let somebody else all of a sudden be the home of human-made music. If there's money to be made, they're going to go after it. Yeah, so creative industries, don't be scared. Um, weapon systems, yikes. Or, yeah, I mean, <laughs> please be scared. Please be scared. <laughs> and, and by the way, 
I would love to frame or put the exclamation point on all of us of saying, I wish we didn't have to have this conversation. Like, I wish it didn't exist at the level it does. Or I wish we had this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, in the 90s, when if you like this, you might also like that first started to become commonplace on every consumer website. That was when we should have been talking about what is it that's doing? What is that algorithm? What is that artificial intelligence that's recommending me stuff? Why were people so excited about the Netflix queue that they would actually spend time in the old days clicking and rating movies so that the, they feeding the algorithm, feeding the AI? Been there. It was fun and novel. You know what I mean? And now it's not so fun and novel anymore, but like we could have predicted it. It's not like it hasn't been being worked on since the 40s. <laughs> it's so loud. And so it's here. One thing I've thought about too is I was an M, very artistically inspired by the Burroughs Geisen cut-up method, which I'm, you're probably very familiar with. Sure. I told you I had a story about the theme song to the podcast. I had this project that I want to resurrect so badly someday, but time, life, et cetera where I created this randomizer to tell me how to write a song that would give me different elements with a stopwatch. Every day I would use those prompts and I'd have to write the song in an hour. And I did it for 30 days straight. And the uh, podcast theme song is one of the songs that came from that. Wait a minute. You're the artist? Yeah. So <laughs> the... You have, to tell, you have to tell our audience that because we don't tell them that. They don't know that. They can do their research. All right. They can pop my name in the chat GPT. All right. Fair. Yeah. I'm trying to, trying to remember the exact way it went. So I had a folder of just all these sounds that I'd collected since I started making music you know, or electronic music, I guess I should say, in the mid 90s. So it was like thousands and thousands of sounds. Who knows where I gathered them from? Like sample CDs, drum loops, wherever, environmental noises. I had a friend help me create an Apple script that would go in this folder and randomly pull out three sounds and open them in my DAW. Wow. These three sounds would be pulled out, and then I'd play a random song on shuffle in my iTunes library. I would use that song as like an inspiration song, just something to listen to before I started, but I would also have to use the BPM of whatever song came up. So prompts. Right. And then I would hit the random article button on Wikipedia whatever entry would come up, I'd have to find my song title somewhere in that in, in there. I would have to create the song, figure out a way to mesh those three sounds together in that BPM inspired by the inspiration song using the song title that I created from the random page. And yeah, some really interesting music came of that. Yeah, that seems completely valid to me. That, I've done something similar where I have like a word pile. I'll take a word and then the first letter of every word I'll take a preset sound for each one of those words. There also is a sub method for generating tones, but put that aside for a second, but use as like the root of a sound to begin to modify using a preset that, that starts with the same letter as each one of those words, open each one in its own track. So I guess packaging that into an algorithm, right? That, I mean, that is an algorithm. That is an algorithm. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's why I brought it up. I was fascinated with the cut-up method and all that. Obviously, when I was very young, I discovered it in, in the beginning of college. If I were there today, I'd be probably figuring out how to do all that with AI. It'd be, and it'd be basically the same thing. Absolutely. And you would both be and not be making music using AI. 
be completely valid, like whatever you were doing. But the th- I think the thing is, you made the differentiation before. That's you as an artist using AI as a tool that you react to, you interact with, you modify, as opposed to this idea that there's some machine that Universal builds. And once they press the on button, it starts making highly produced and great sounding professional multi-tracked and mastered <laughs> songs that can be released in amazing quantity. Maybe, maybe that'll happen. Right. So we'll go from what, 125,000 songs a day being uploaded to Spotify to 3 million. It's none of it's going to get into my algorithm. Yeah. That brings me to another interesting thing is human curators. Do you think human curation will make like a big comeback as far as say like music blogs, music journalism and stuff like that? It just seems to me that the more confusing it gets, the more need you have for trusted sources. I have very contradictory feelings about that, mainly because I personally don't care what other people <laughs> are listening to. You know what I mean? Like I, I trust my own interests and I might go through a phase where I'll read a voice for a while and look at what they're into. But ultimately, I never stick with it over time. Even during the height of the blog era, I just don't care what somebody else thinks is good. That's great. That, and I'm glad that we have these tools to publish our opinions and it's all great. But I don't, I, there's so much content that I don't really have time for the meta content about the content. Right. I, I like a little bit of criticism much more than I like curation and recommendation. My contradictory answer is I don't particularly care, but I think there's people who like it. I don't know. I, I really don't know because I don't know who the audience is for it. There's probably a group of people that are really interested in music enough that want to talk about opinions all day and surface stuff with each other all the time. But that sounds excruciating to me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm lumping in criticism and reviewing with the idea of curation as well. But yeah, there definitely is a difference. One of the areas where I have really enjoyed the algorithm is in music. Like I, I find more music that challenges me and makes me think that I end up liking probably more than at any other point in my life. Like I specifically like the Spotify recommendation. I rely pretty heavy on, on discover weekly and on. Release yeah. That's Radar. the one I was, that, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have Spotify anymore, but when I did have it, Discover Weekly was the spookiest thing. It was like a ghost. It was like a ghost haunting me. Tell me if you've had this experience. It would source songs that I loved when I was like, say, 22, but I hadn't thought about since I was like 22. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like something would come up and I'd just be like, holy shit. <laughs> this, song I, this song I like. Or artists that you always knew you should explore and never got around to it. And then it was like, holy shit, it no, like I was right. I should have explored. Like I remember Skip Spence, like I never really paid attention. And then Discover Weekly was like, you need to check out Skip Spence. Like just random shit would come up. Not even like name brand things, just music. It would drop something in there. I'm like, yes, thank you. You're right. I do like that. Or I don't like that, but it's interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me, but I'm going to pass. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And on the other hand, um, the release radar, which I love, which I get new music from every week. I can't believe how persistent it is about some stuff I don't like and that I repeatedly skip over. And I'm convinced like somebody must be paying to get their music in there because why does it keep giving it to me when I show no 
interest in it. I remember finding that too. And even more annoying is there would be like maybe an older artist or an obscure artist that I would be really into. And there'd be a newer artist that had the same name. That would be horrible. And it would just keep putting this newer artist in my release radar or my Discover Weekly. And it would just, no, I, no. How do I tell it I don't like this without telling it that I, I still love this other artist as the same name? They've really tamped down on the, the whole thing of like somebody making a song and putting another artist's name in it. Like I used to oh, get- Oh, no, I'm, t- I'm talking about two artists that legitimately have the same name. Oh, sure, sure. There was a, I'll leave it to you whether he was bad or good, but there was a very not Sam Rivers-like R&B artist named Sam Rivers. Oh, no. And so this artist would always get in my release radar or Discover Weekly because I listen to a lot of Sam Rivers. Listen, it sucks if you like Sam Rivers and you get some shitty off-brand Sam Rivers. But your day is really fucked up if you like the shitty off-brand Sam Rivers. You have no idea what to do with that. <laughs> you know who would find that? It's the funniest thing ever is Sam Rivers. <laughs> Sam Rivers, yeah, that's great. <laughs> he that's great. So do you, you know Sam Rivers was in Orlando the last couple decades of his life? No. It's amazing. I did a gig with Sam Rivers once. That's incredible. Shorts, short story. I'll make it short. So he had his trio. His trio was crazy, as you can imagine. Not just him, but the two young guys he had in his trio, the bass player and the drummer. Oh my God, they were like nuts. And they're still around, the two guys. I would see the trio all the time. And Sam was kind of in our circle in just Orlando music. His manager at the time was a good friend of mine. And the manager was kind of like, yeah, you should do these kind of shows because this was in the mid-90s when, as you were talking about with Peter Kruger a few weeks ago, there was a jazz resurgence with electronic music going on then. The manager was like, yeah, you should collaborate with some electronic musicians in Orlando. So he did some stuff with some DJs and some of this and that. They did a trio gig in Tampa and he was like, yeah, Sam wants you to try this out with him. I did this thing where I had a turntable and I had a weird old synthesizer, and then I had my tape delay. I had one of those big rolling cores that go tape delays. It was like my prized possession. I was just going to do weird sounds and stuff while the trio played. And we do the show, and it's all improv, and they're just ripping. They're just like doing crazy shit. And I'm doing, I'm scared. I'm doing like weird little sounds here and there, and I'm just kind of getting no reaction from anybody. And we're about halfway through, and finally I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to get in the spirit. I'm going to let it rip. So I had some sound, some synthesizer thing where I just did like this crazy sound. And then I ran the tape delay and I just started playing the tape delay. So it just looked like all dubby, all filtered out and getting noisy and just really loud. It was like really loud. And Sam's playing his sax and he just stops playing, just stops. And he's standing motionless, facing outward. And I'm like thinking, oh shit, I screwed up. He is not digging this at all. And he's standing there for like 10 seconds or so, just motionless. And then he turns, cheer me, and goes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. That was amazing. It was definitely wow. one of the greatest moments of my life. Wow. He was a good guy. That's beautiful. Wow. He was a good guy. Wow. Thank you so much to my partner in crime, Michael Donaldson. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We are produced and edited by the aforementioned Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. 
for past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.